So we finished up with 2 Corinthians 5, fantastic passage introducing to us the idea, the understanding that if any man or woman is in Christ, they're a new creation, a new creature, a whole new thing. When you get saved, when you're born again, you're not born again the same as you were. It's something that happens on the inside. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, once you become a Christian, you don't see things the same anymore. We don't look at people based on the outward appearance because even though you've been saved, you still look the same when you wake up the next day. You don't turn purple or have polka dots or the change that God makes is on the inside. And now sometimes that changes some things on the outside too, but largely it's the internal work of God to make you a new creation, a new creature on the inside. And that's not so easy to see unless and until it affects our behavior. One of the things being a new creature affects is our purpose in our lives. And our purpose, Paul said, is we are ambassadors for Christ. We're pleading with people to be reconciled to God. And now Paul continues that thought. Remember, when Paul wrote, he didn't say, okay, that's chapter five. I'm going to go on vacation, come back, and I'll write chapter six. He wrote continually this whole letter. He transcribed it. Someone else wrote it for him, but he spoke it. Someone wrote it, but he didn't have chapter breaks. Those are added later on for our benefit. I can tell you, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter six, and you know where to go. So don't picture this as a new thought. It's a continuation when Paul says, we then, as workers together with him, with who? With God also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and now the Isaiah quote, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So what is Paul saying? Paul's talking about pleading with people as ambassadors. That's what ambassadors do. They don't represent themselves. They represent the one who sent them. An ambassador to America is from another country, but they're here in America representing their homeland. And that's what an ambassador does. So Paul says as ambassadors, we're pleading with people. And he says, Corinthians, we're here because we're pleading with you. We're working together with God. I like that. It's not between Paul and the Corinthians. Paul says, my job is God wants to do something. He wants to see people come into his family. He wants to see people come into relationship with him. That's what we plead with people to do. Be reconciled to God. Have you had that person in your life or those people in your life where you just look at them and you go, that's not your problem and this isn't your problem. It's not your wife's fault. It's not your kid's fault. It's not your boss's fault. You need to be reconciled to God. Like you're far from God and it's not God's fault. God has done everything to open the door for relationship with him and he's just begging you You know, we sometimes hear people say, well, I wouldn't want to worship a God who sends people to hell. You ever heard that? And this is a complete misunderstanding of the Bible. God has done everything to open up a door for relationship with him so people can be in his family. I mean, he has sent his son to die on the cross to forgive sin and reconcile your life to his. The only way you get to hell is by rejecting that. So you can't blame God. And God takes it so seriously that he sends people like me and you to beg people. God is begging you, please come into relationship with him. He's begging. That's how much God loves people. It breaks his heart. The Bible says that God desires that none should perish. No, not one. It breaks God's heart when people reject him. And then when you run from God, you run to hell. 
People are only in hell because they've run there on their own, because they've run to escape from God. And that's the only place you can escape God eternally is hell. So Paul is pleading with them. He's working together with God. This is God's message. This is between God and the Corinthians. This is between God and you. And he's pleading, please don't receive the grace of God in vain. What's he talking about? What kind of grace, what gift of God? The previous verse said, Paul brought to the Corinthians, he said that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The grace is God's great exchange. God says, I'm going to exchange your sin. I'm going to give that to my son and I'm going to give you my son's righteousness. And you don't have to do a thing to earn it. You don't have to act better. You don't have to dress better. You don't have to try harder. You don't have to be more successful. You just have to receive it. And Paul says, boy, my big hope for you, Corinthians, my big hope for us in Fluvanna is when you hear that what God wants, when you hear what God is doing, that you don't reject it, that you don't take that, receive it, and it goes in one ear and out the other. Do you get a sense of urgency from Paul? That's why he quotes Isaiah. And he's saying what Isaiah said back then is true right now. And it's true today for some of you. In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And the day of salvation, I have helped you. Well, pastor, when is the acceptable time? When is the time of salvation? And maybe for me, it's not yet. Maybe for me, maybe God doesn't want to save me today. Can I just change your opinion on that? According to Paul, the day you hear of the grace of God for your life, the day you hear of his compassion and his love and his forgiveness and his desire to have relationship with you, the day you hear that is the day of salvation. That's the day that God brings his grace to your life, to your ears. And that's why he says, behold, now is the accepted time and now is the day of salvation. There's a sense of urgency for Paul. Do you sense that? He says, Corinthians, now is the time. Don't put off this thing. How many of you are good at putting stuff off? I mean, I'm terrible at that. How many of you have unfinished projects at home? Be honest. Oh, and you look at it and you pass it by and you go, I really need to get to that. I'll get to it later. There's some things you can get to later and it's okay. But there's some things that you need to deal with today. Matter of fact, when I was in school, I think it was high school maybe, we had to write a how-to paper. Have any of you had to write a paper like that? It's called a how-to paper. And in the paper, you have to outline how to do something or how to make something like, you know, how to make chocolate chip cookies. Then you had to do it. I did my paper on how to procrastinate. <laughs> and I handed it in. It was one sheet of paper. And it said, dear teacher, I haven't got around to writing it yet. And that was my paper. And I got an A. She gave me an A. I think she appreciated my creativity and sense of humor, but she gave me an A on my how-to paper, how to procrastinate. Well, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to your eternal destiny, there was a day when people were really, really concerned about what happened when they died. They really were concerned with their lives, with judgment, with hell, with their relationship with God. They were concerned about those things. We live in a time of spiritual apathy. People go, ah, what does it matter? We feel like we have all of our lives to make these decisions. I'll get around to making that decision later. When the dog dies and the kids go off to college, then I'll, or after I've made my first million or after I've found my success, 
then I'll deal with those things. Well, sometimes later comes sooner. An example is, it was 9 p.m. on Sunday, October 8th. The year was 1871. The evening service at a church in Chicago had just let out, or was just letting out, the preacher, the famous Dwight L. Moody. That night, he had preached to the largest crowd ever that he had preached to in Chicago. His text for his evening sermon that Sunday evening was Matthew 27, 22. The title of his message was, What Then Shall I Do With Jesus Who Is Called the Christ? It comes from that passage where Pontius Pilate presents Barabbas, the criminal, and Jesus. And he says, it's a common custom to release one of these on the Passover. Who do you want me to release to you? Do you want me to release Jesus to you? And they say, no, we want Barabbas. And then he says, well, then what do you want me to do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? And that was the topic of D.L. Moody's sermon for that night. At the end of his sermon, as he concluded, he encouraged the people, now, I want you to go home and take this week, and I want you to think about God. And I want you to think about whether or not you have a relationship with him, what you've done with Jesus. And I want you to come back next week ready to make a decision about Jesus. And just as he was ending, Ira Sankey, his worship leader, got up, very famous worship leader, got up and began to lead in the chorus of, today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls and death is nigh. But before he could finish the song, the sound of sirens streaming down the street interrupted the chorus because the great Chicago fire had broken out. It burned for three days. It raged. And that night, or within that course of that three days, uh, many houses were destroyed. Many lives were lost. Dwight Moody's house and church were both destroyed. And the lives of some in his congregation were lost, as well as their houses. The incident impacted D.L. Moody in a very tremendous and deep way. He despised the fact that he sent people home, giving them time to make a decision, because then he realized that you may not have time. His regret and his guilt over that night made him physically ill. And he said this as a result of that night. He said, I want to tell you of one lesson that I learned that night which I've never forgotten. And that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there to try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have that right hand cut off than to give an audience a week now to decide what to do with Jesus. I think Paul would agree with that, don't you? He's telling the Corinthians and he's telling some of us here, hey, I've heard you and in the day of salvation, I've helped you. God's saying, behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. In the true nature and sense of the passage we're looking at, in the true heart of God and the apostle Paul, I'll say to you, please, before you leave here today, make a decision about Jesus. You've heard about him. We've talked about God's love and his character and his nature. And there's many things we've left out. There's so much to learn. But what you know that you know that you know is that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And God is a loving father providing the savior so that you can have eternal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Leave here with peace, knowing that by faith, you've accepted that, entered into that, and look forward to all that God promises you. Verse three, the message is so important that Paul says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry, our service may not be blamed. Paul knows what you and I both know is that if he can destroy the messenger, you can destroy the message. If you can blemish the messenger, you can blemish 
the message. How many people have you met that have sort of rejected God because of church abuses? Whether it was sexual abuse that's been on the news in the Catholic church, financial abuse with TV evangelists or any other thing on that whole continuum, we know that the church has been far from perfect throughout history. Because there's a number of reasons why that is, but for the Apostle Paul, he took his role as an ambassador so seriously that he said, I want to live in such a way that no one can cast a shadow on my message or on my life or on my ministry. I wonder if we have that same type of attitude toward the way we live. Because that's Paul. Paul's messenger. Paul's an evangelist. And I'm just me. Well, didn't Paul just tell us that we're all, as Christians, ambassadors for Christ? We're all representatives of him. And Paul says, I take this so seriously that I guard my ministry so carefully. I guard the integrity. I don't take liberties that maybe I could take because I want to be careful that no one misunderstands what I'm doing. Now, I know as Christians, we tend to go, well, you know, I want to take some liberties. I I have the liberty to do this, or I have the freedom to do that. And you might, but for the sake of protecting your reputation, for the sake of protecting your identity of who you are, because if you're going to tell people you're a Christian, they're going to watch how you live. You know, look, I love going to Food Lion. It takes me three hours to get milk and butter in Food Lion because we're all there. Don't you love going to church in a small community? Louvain is 26,000 people, but it's still kind of small town America. And I love that because we can't hide. <laughs> and I think that's really good because if you see someone in Food Lion, you're on the outs with, we're like making up and hugging in the frozen food section. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, that's weird when you see someone there and then you got to walk the other way because you're not reconciled. There's some kind of issue there. So I try to keep short accounts with people, kind of make sure we're on the up and up. But I see you coming through Food Lion, you got your cart and I see what's in your cart. And I've watched people go from six feet tall to two inches tall because they've been in the liquor aisle. There's the case. And you know me, I can't say, thus saith the Lord, you can never have a beer or never have a glass of wine. The Bible doesn't say that. But what I can say is the people who see you and know you're an ambassador for Christ, they might not know it's just one glass. Or maybe it's not just one glass for you. So as an ambassador of Christ, I make a decision to go, you know what? Just so no one can wonder whether or not Steve's tying one on every night. In my cart, I got lettuce and carrots. and <laughs> But man, I've watched people just cower. When I, oh, it's Steve. You know, the cart turns really fast. Like a zero-degree turn mower, you know. Zoom. <laughs> and I say this in jest, but the reality is I don't want to do anything that would give even an opportunity for someone to cast doubt about the reason I'm in ministry. And about the message, you know, think about Moses. Moses doesn't get to cross into the promised land because he misrepresented God to people. He represented God as angry, but God wasn't angry. The situations that Paul's talking about, what are the situations in which Paul doesn't want to give offense? That's what he says in verse three, in order that for the specific purpose that my ministry may not be blemished, he says, but in all things, rather than being blemished in all things, We commend ourselves as ministers to God in every situation, whether I'm in food line or in the classroom, whether I'm in the hospital or wherever I am, I'm at the workplace, I'm in my own home, whatever situation I am in, I am presenting myself as a minister of God. Paul didn't have an off button. I'm on when I'm at church. I'm on when I'm at Bible study. But when I get home, that's me time, baby. That's my time. And if I want to light you up with my words, I'm going to do it. You don't represent you. 
you got to say, Jesus, can I say this to them? And Jesus says, would I say it to them? And you go, oh, probably not. Imagine Jesus saying what you just said to your kids. Imagine Jesus saying to your spouse what you just said to your spouse. And if you can't imagine that, then maybe you shouldn't say it. And Paul's saying, whatever situation I'm in, I'm always on. I'm always a minister of God. You are always an ambassador for Christ. So what are those situations? Well, he starts out with the word in. In much patience, in tribulations, even when the pressure is on, Paul's gentle because Jesus is gentle. Even when the pressure is on, Paul keeps his cool. In needs, at least that's his goal. In distresses, even in tight places. In stripes, that's not describing his pajamas. In stripes meaning he took a beating. Even when he was taking a beating. Remember Paul and Silas? That's what he's describing. Paul and Silas in Philippi, put in prison. Wherever Paul went, riots broke out. So Paul ends up in prison again, and he gets beaten by the jailer. And then he's put in the inner dungeon, his feet put in stocks. And what's he doing there? He's singing. He goes, hey, Silas, you got a song on your heart? What can we sing? What kind of guy does that? Because he always knew that even in prison, people were watching. And who gets saved as a result of that moment? The jailer and his whole family become part of the first people in the Philippian church because they saw how Paul dealt with tumults and imprisonments and labors in sleeplessness and in fastings. That's verse five. By purity. Now he switches to the word by. These were his methods of commending his ministry. By purity, by knowledge, by long suffering. That's how people knew Paul was a minister of God because he was patient. And by kindness, that's how he commended himself, by being kind to people. By the Holy Spirit, by sincere love. Verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand, on the left. That describes a a Roman soldier with a, a shield or on the left arm and a sword in his right hand. So on his left and his right, Paul had righteousness, the armor of righteousness. By honor and dishonor and by evil, and good report. So sometimes people would speak well of Paul. Sometimes people spoke not too well of Paul. But Paul was always consistent. Now he switches from in to by, now to as. As deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known. So the word deceivers is vagabond or someone who is dishonest. So some saw Paul that way. They said, oh, Paul's not really being honest. Paul's not really being truthful. And some saw him that way. But yet he said, yet everything I've said has been truthful. I've just been completely open and honest with you people. As unknown, they said, Paul, we don't know what your credentials are. Paul said, I've not hidden anything. You know exactly who I am. Paul's one of those people that what you see is what you get. Don't you like people like that? There's no games. There's no, what is Paul really like? Is he different in private than he is in public? Paul was the same whether you met him in church, whether he was preaching a sermon, or whether you saw him in Food Lion. He was the same guy. As unknown, yet well-known. As dying, and behold, look, we live. As chastened, and yet not killed. Verse 10, as sorrowful, in pain, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet possessing all things. What a list Paul gives. 
And you have to notice as you read this, how his perspective on things really moderates his behavior. We might look at Paul's situation and say one thing, but Paul says, actually, I see things differently because Paul sees things through the eyes of faith. I just look, for example, at verse 10, people would look on at Paul. You and I might say, oh, Paul, how in the world can you deal with what you're going through? All that you've been through, that must be causing you all kinds of pain and difficulty and resentment. And Paul says, no, actually, I'm always rejoicing. That's what faith does. Because Paul didn't look at things on the lateral plane. He didn't look at things that were temporary. Where was he looking? He told us this in chapter 5. He's looking at things above. He's looking at the eternal. So that gives him a different perspective. Look at the next part. As poor yet making many rich. So we would look at Paul and say, oh, poor guy. How does he live that way? He hardly has anything. And Paul says, you think I don't have anything? I'm the richest guy on earth. I got Jesus. I've got peace. I've got integrity. I've got hope. I've got joy. I've got the love of God poured out into my heart. I'm not jealous of anybody else. People should be jealous of me. You might think I'm poor, and I might be poor materially. You know, you travel around the world. The gospel of the rich and famous does not preach in the tribes of Africa. It doesn't preach in the slums of Calcutta. You can't preach health, wealth, and prosperity there. It doesn't work. It only works in America. And it's crazy because Paul says it's not about material wealth. Paul says, I've learned to be wealthy and I've learned to have nothing. In all things, I've learned to be content. And contentment isn't something you get from external. Contentment is something that happens in your heart. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, church? If you're not content now, doesn't matter how much we give you, you'll never be content. If you're not content right now, more goods, more materialism, more vacation, well, that might help. But um, (laughs) those things don't breed contentment. As poor, yet Paul had a source. Not only was he rich, he was making others rich. I like this as having nothing and yet possessing all things. There's a lot of people that materially speaking, they have everything they could want. In America, I think relative to the rest of the world, we are the haves. Even the least of us in here is a have. And then there are the have-nots. And we, for some reason, although we have so much, are the least happier in the world. We struggle with happiness and contentment more than any other nation. We're the most independent, but we're the most medicated. And it's the great paradox of American life because the focus is on the material. We live in a materialistic age. And Paul says, get your eyes off of the things of the world. You'll see differently. You might not have much materially, but look at what you have in Christ. Read Ephesians chapter 1. You have redemption. You have forgiveness of sins. You have a hope for eternity. And on and on we could go. So yet having nothing, and Paul saw his life as, I possess all things. How do you see your life? Do you look at your own life with the eyes of faith or with material eyes? It changes the way you live, changes the way you see yourself. So Paul goes on in verse 11, and he says, oh, Corinthians. It's like he's flabbergasted. Like he's, he's pleading with, oh, Corinthians. We have spoken openly or literally honestly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, for my openness, I speak as to children, you also be open. One of the things we love about this letter is it's so personal. This is probably the most personal letter that Paul writes, at least one of them. And we see it right here. 
Paul says, oh, you Corinthians, I'm speaking to you like a parent-child relationship, and I'm asking you, open your heart to me. He says, I've opened, literally, I've spread out my heart before you. Paul knew nothing of cold, emotionless, disconnected ministry, where the pastor stands up, preaches a sermon, and disappears, never to have a relationship with people. Did you see that here? Paul knows nothing of that. Matter of fact, Paul's going to go on to say later in this letter, he says, though the more I love you, let me back up. He says, I will gladly, this is the heart of a pastor, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. You parents know how that feels. But yet the more I love you, the less I'm loved by you. What's this deal? Like I keep pouring out love to you. I keep pouring out care for you. But yet the more I do, the more you seem to get driven away. And we're going to find out why in just a minute. So that's what Paul's talking about. I have opened my heart to you and you have stepped on it. Isn't that the danger of love? Paul wasn't the kind of guy who said, well, I don't know if I can trust people, so I'm not going to take a chance and love them. Paul said, I'm going to love people. I'm going to recognize that sometime I'm going to get my heart stepped on. And that's just the way it is. But that doesn't mean we stop loving. We just recognize that people are hurting. Hurt people hurt people. You know the saying. So Paul is one of those people who's getting hurt by the people he's loving. I've opened my heart to you. And then it seems that the Corinthians are blamers. You know anybody that's a blamer? It's never their fault. It's always the other person's fault. And he says to them, they've evidently blamed him for the difficulty in their relationship. He says, look, you're not restricted by us. You're not kept in check. The relationship issue is not on our end. We've opened our hearts to you. But you're restricted in your own or by your own affections. The word affections If you could read it in Greek, it's the word we would translate bowels, bowels. They describe the emotions, the deepest emotions. How would we describe emotions? We say things happen in our heart. That's where we see the emotions being felt. But the ancients saw the emotions being felt where? In the gut. You would say that was a gut-wrenching experience. I have butterflies in my heart. No, no, no. When you're nervous, when you're anxious, where do you get butterflies? In your stomach. The word melancholy means black bile or black liver. So there's a connection. I think they had it more right than we do. There's a deep connection between our digestive system and our emotions and our psychology. Matter of fact, the more the medical industry, the medical world studies these things, in the connections, the nervous system connections between brain and gut, the vast majority of them, 90% of them take information from the gut to the brain. This is free information, by the way. You didn't sign up for this when you came in. It's just free information. 90% take information from the gut to the brain, only 10% from the brain to the gut. Your gut tells you a lot about what's going on deep inside of you. My dad, a college professor for 40, 50 years, struggled with ulcers. Because stress and anxiety tend to manifest themselves in our digestive system and in our health there. So, like I said, that's all free information. You didn't sign up for that. But the word affections, that's why the ancients translated bowels was connected to this deep, deep, affectionate relationship. So when Paul says you're restricted by your own emotional life, their own bitternesses, their own anxieties toward Paul, that was what was restricting them. Let me give you an example if I can, to illustrate this, because Paul goes on to say, I speak to you as to children, because he's asking them to open their hearts. How many of you have ever had or known someone that's had a rebellious child? And how heartbreaking that can be. And the more you try to 
love them, the more you try to have relationship with them, the more it pushes them away. And it's not just about obedience. It's about their heart. It's about this rebelliousness. Parents, you know then how Paul feels with this church. And Paul's saying, look, if there's any conflict or distance, it's not on my end. It's on your end. Please, I've opened myself up to you. Paul's not here concerned with just their obedience. What's he concerned with? He's concerned with their heart. He's concerned with his relationship with them. Moms and dads, when it comes to your kids, you need to be concerned about more than just them obeying. You need to be concerned with their heart, having their heart. You want to win your kids, you want to have obedient kids, then focus not on their activity, but on their heart, their emotional life. Ask them, I'll do what Paul did. I've opened my heart to you. Now, would you please open your heart to me? Tell me, parents, say to your kids, tell me how you feel. When's the last time you asked your kids that? And didn't correct them or fix them in the process. It's revolutionary in family. Just let them tell you how they feel because that will foster relationship. You may disagree. I mean, they're teenagers for crying out loud. They don't even know how they feel. But whatever they feel, it's magnified. So Paul, we see some interesting side notes here as Paul deals with this church. Now in return, I speak to you as children. You also open up to me. Now, why were they closed off to him? What was the problem? What was getting in the way of the relationship? Verse 14 tells us, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So it's not that they were totally antisocial or that they were totally non-relational. Oh, they were relational, all right. The problem was they just had relationships with the wrong people. Parents, you know that. When you tell your rebellious child, I don't want you hanging out with them, where do they want to hang out? With them. The Bible even tells us, Paul said it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Those people you're hanging out with, the people you're being intimate with, are affecting the way you think and the way you live. And so Paul knows they have relationships with some people that are not godly. And those relationships are affecting their relationship with Paul. And that's why he says, literally, stop continually, presently being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I like this too. I'm a biology guy. That was my college degree was in biology. So this may mean something to some of you, but the word for unequally yoked together, it's a biological, well, we've adopted it in the biology world. It's heterozygous. If you know something about genetics, then uh, the word heterozygous will mean something to you. But I see by the confused look on your faces that most of you could care less. So if you know anything about agriculture, or if you've ever gone to the bathroom here at Calvary Chapel, you'll notice between the two bathrooms, if you look up over the water fountain, you see a giant ox yoke. Have you seen that? Have you noticed? Well, look up at the screen here. There's a picture of being equally yoked together. That yoke is the wooden thing. It needs to be connected, to tie together, unified. So that's what being equally yoked looks like. It's a farming term. Paul picks it up from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 22, God says to the Israelites, don't plow with an ox and a donkey. That's just dumb. Don't do that. So here's how it should look to equally uh, and enabled animals pulling together for the same purpose, with the same strength, the same zeal. Okay, go to the unequally yoked one. There's your ox and donkey. Now we have donkeys. Have you been to our farm? You know, we have donkeys. And some of you have donkeys. Now don't talk about your spouse that way. It's not what we're talking about. Some of you have donkeys. And you know, a donkey 
has a whole different mind than anything else. The way to get them to not go somewhere is to want them to go somewhere. You push them, they push back. I mean, I tried to put our donkey back in its pasture the other night, and the harder I pushed, the more he pushed back. So when you get two animals yoked together, and they're thinking differently, they operate differently, their minds are wired differently, and you want to get something accomplished, you got a frustrated farmer on your hands. Because trying to plow a field will take you forever. Trying to get anything done will take an act of God because they're just going in different directions. And now it's hard for us to imagine the illustration because we don't live in that agricultural world. Let's do this. Let's update the illustration. What compatibility do Android and iPhone have? Does that make sense? You're not laughing. Are they compatible or not? No. How many Apple users? I read an article that said one of the things on like Match.com, iPhone users, if you're an Android user, they don't want to date you. I didn't say that, but that's just the trend that they're seeing. Android users, the people that just had their hands up, you guys can't work together because it's just (laughs) not going to work. Clearly what Paul is not talking about is things like skin color. When he says don't be unequally yoked, he's not talking about race or skin color, or size, outward appearance, nationality, socioeconomic standings. What's he talking about, church? Unequally yoked to unbelievers. He's given the church, he's given them a warning to save you from all the frustration of trying to get things, get life done when you're yoked in, when you're intimately in relationship with someone who thinks differently than you, that has a different foundation than you. He says, just be careful because it will impact the way you think and it will impact the way you live and it will be painful. So he's trying to give us some help. He uses five examples to kind of elaborate. And notice, we're gonna get there, but notice this is not a marriage study. He's not talking about marriage, although that is a application of this verse, one of many. But let's go through the five things. So notice the five things. What fellowship, that's one, has righteousness with lawlessness. He says, hey, Corinthians, What partnership, how can two people have a business partnership when one has a godly moral compass and the other one doesn't? For the other one, one is morally relative. Well, whatever I feel like doing today, whatever I feel is right, when the other one has a godly moral compass. How are you two ever gonna make decisions? One wants to cheat on the taxes and the other one doesn't. One wants to skim off the top and the other one doesn't. This is why we have whistleblowers and things in our day and age, because sometimes in business, people want to do things without integrity. But if you're a Christian, you're going to go, no, I don't think this is right. And if you're yoked together in that partnership, it's going to make business really, really hard. And it may put you in a real compromising position. What communion, that's the famous word koinonia, what joint participation has light with darkness. Third word, verse 15, and what accord has Christ with Belial. That's the Hebrew word for worthless, and it's a nickname for Satan. What accord, literally, I like this, what symphony, the Greek word would be, what symphony, if we were going to have a symphony, would Jesus and Satan have the same sheet of music? Somebody say, no, pastor. No, 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 no. Jesus and Satan have different sheets of music. They can't be in a symphony together because they're singing a different song. Jesus sings a song of life. Satan sings a song of death. Jesus sings a song of truth. And Satan sings a song of lies. What part 
uh, literally what portion has a believer, one who trusts God, with someone who doesn't trust God? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, verse 16, hold on to that. We'll finish that up in a minute. But look back at the previous word, what part or portion has a believer with an unbeliever? So again, this isn't primarily a marriage passage, but certainly I do enough marriages, enough weddings, I'm involved in enough premarital counseling that I've been through this enough. And I've had people tell me after the fact, I married them. I regret it because they weren't a believer. I thought I could change them. And I realized I can't. And pastor, it just makes my life very difficult. So know this, if you're here and you are today unequally yoked together with an unbelieving spouse, then this verse is not speaking to you to break that yoke. Your job now is to be Christ to that spouse because you've entered into that relationship. And by being Christ to them and praying for them, maybe you'll see a change. But you have a ministry of reconciliation to one primary audience. But if you're not there yet, or if it's a relationship you can get out of, Paul says, hey, stop being yoked together spiritually with people that are just not living the life. And I sit with young couples and they have stars in their eyes. Oh, pastor, we can do anything together. Then a year later, they said, we can't stand to be together. What happened? Life happened. Decisions happened. Kids happened. How are we going to raise them? How are we going to punish? How are we going to discipline? Are we going to give money to the church? What are we going to do? What do we do on Sundays? How do you explain to the kids why mom goes to church and dad doesn't? And just because someone says they're a believer doesn't mean they, church, help me out, doesn't mean they are. So many young girls, oh, but he says he's a believer till about day three of the honeymoon. And then he goes back to being who he was because you want to wait until you see the fruit. You want that guy or that girl to have an existing relationship with God already. That they have it on their own without you. And that they go to church without you, not just for you. Because we're guys, we're smart, man. We know what to do to seal the deal. We know what to do to get it done. So this may not apply to any of you, but this is going to be on the radio. And someone's going to hear it and go, oh man. So God begs and tells and says, I'm just warning you. And people say, I know better than God. What does God know? And then they're going, pastor, pastor, we need your help. We're killing each other. I tried to tell you before you got married. There's some things you just can't ignore. You can ignore them when you're dating because you can get out of that. Even if you're engaged, you can get out of that. But once you're married, you're committed. You got to take your time and figure this out. Don't be unequally yoked. Because what agreement? How are you going to work that out? And there's, of course, business relationships and church-based relationships. Well, he says, what agreement? Uh, that's to cast your vote together. Does the temple of God have with idols? Well, temple of God, what church building, what does that have to do with anything? He says, no, no, don't think bricks and mortar. The next verse, he says, for you are the temple of God. You're the temple of God. Temple of God isn't a building. The temple of God is your body. You're the temple of God. And what agreement, that's what they were doing. They were going to church and then hanging out with people that were pagans. They were hanging out with darkness. They were hanging out with sinful people in an intimate way, in close relationship. And Paul says, this is the problem. On one hand, you're saying you're a Christian and you're at the church. But on the other hand, you're hanging out at the bar with all the people from the bar, and that's where your intimate relationships are. And he says, you're the temple of the living God. And God said, I will dwell in them, in people. God dwells in you. 
and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. He says, you don't have to be like everybody else. Why have relationships with darkness when you can have relationships with light? Unless there's still an attraction to darkness for you. Unless there's still an attraction to sin for you. But he says, look, come out. We're called to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Not self-righteous, not looking down on them, just living different. What good is the church if we're not different from the world? You know that, right? Tell me, are you with me, church? What good is the church if we're just like the world? No wonder the church is diminishing in its reputation and in its attendance because people go, I see what the people in the church do. It's no different than the world. So who needs it? Why bother? Come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. If you separate from that, then you can enter closer into this relationship with God. I will be a father to you. You're looking for protection. You're looking for care. You're looking for nurturing. Those people that dwell in darkness, they're fair weather friends. You want something lasting. You want something real. You want something permanent. Then let God be your father. I have an earthly father. You have an earthly father. My spiritual father, he supersedes my earthly father. I care more about what he says than what my earthly father says. Love my earthly father. But when I got born again, I got a new father. My father is in heaven. And I care more about what he says than what anybody else says on the face of the earth. I care more about that relationship than any other relationship on the face of the earth. And my wife will tell you, that's what makes marriage successful is when each person in the marriage cares more about what their heavenly father says than each other. My wife knows and I know we're second. God is first. And that's what makes it work. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never surrendered to God, you've been in church, you've sat in the seats, but you know that you know that in your heart, if on the day that you die, God says, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I let you in my family? And you have a list of the good things you've done. You've not figured it out yet. If all you have to say on that day is, God, I have a lamb slain for my sins, then you get it. So if you can't say that, then today might be the day of salvation for you.